If you're new to Rockfish, welcome. Glad to have you with us. So about my tie, as many of you have asked. Uh, Last time I was here, I was sporting a t-shirt, feeling good, nice and cool, missed all this heat. This morning, I've got a pink and blue tie on, and the reason is because uh, Chelsea and I found out the gender of our baby this week, and uh, we didn't tell any of you yet because Pinterest has poisoned her mind, (laughs) putting all these crazy ideas in there, and, and they came up with something called a gender reveal party. And I guess it's a party wherein you tell people the gender of your baby. I think it's a little weird, personally. Uh, But she assures me people do it. And so, nevertheless, we're going to be having a gender reveal party uh, next door after church. And all of you are invited. If you're here, you're welcome to come with us. Uh, We have food for you, and uh, we would love to have you there. Um, So, yeah, I guess she's caught the theme is guns or glitter or, or one of those things. I wanted to go guns and roses, but she thought that was too extreme. Anyhow, you're invited, so if you're able, please do come. Uh, This morning, before we open up God's Word together, uh, I wanted to take a few minutes and and share my heart with you. Um, If you're not a member, by the way, you're invited to listen in. And uh, as you do, I would like you to know that there are no perfect churches and that uh, Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, like most families, has, uh, as Taylor Swift might say, problems. Right, we've got some problems, and uh, and we we work through them together. I want you to know that we are a community of sinners saved by grace, and that we are messy people living our lives together as an expression of God's love for us. I want you to know that we're committed to one another, and that we love one another even when it's really hard. And and being messy people, uh, we had a messy meeting and a really hard week together. Uh, To be honest with you, I wanted to to tell you that the week was largely heartbreaking for me. Yes, encouraging things came out of it, and I I, I ended up encouraged, and and I'm happy with what the Lord is doing here. But but I was heartbroken for the majority of the week, and and I'm certain many of you have felt that way also. There's a large part of me that didn't want to to be here this morning. Some of you maybe felt the same way. Uh, Many of us spoke harshly and said things that we are ashamed of to one another, and and many of us submitted ourselves to our emotions and to anger rather than to the Holy Spirit, Uh, likened it to a married couple having an argument and saying things uh, intent on hurting one another. I talked to Henry on Friday about it, and, and I loved what he said to me. He said, I wasn't there, but had I been, I'm sure I would have said something I didn't want to, too. Wednesday night for many of us, uh, we, we sinned terribly against one another and against the Lord. And for a large portion of the evening, we looked more like the world than a redeemed community. It was hard and it tested our mettle. But instead of breaking apart and continuing to throw stones at one another, together we confessed sin, repented, and asked for the Father's forgiveness. It was a beautiful picture of the gospel at the end of the night. Tears were shed, some of anger, some of sorrow, and I think most of relief. I say relief because I think many of us were in fear that uh, our fellowship and a lot of the good things that the Lord has been doing here were were coming undone in just one short sin-filled hour. And we, we were able to learn very quickly firsthand how quickly 
our wickedness can cause us to turn on one another. We learned just how deadly sin can be. And we learned how much greater grace is. We stood witness to life overcoming death, and we learned that we as a body are held together by something much more substantial and lasting than common interest or age or cultural background or or anything else. I think we learned a little bit more of what it means to be bound together in Christ as his sons and as his daughters, and for that I'm thankful. Nevertheless, while forgiveness and reconciliation have taken place, I think some of the residue of the consequences of sin remains on my heart, and and I'm guessing on some of yours as well. So as we continue to press in and, and care for one another and bind up those wounds that are a little slower to heal, I want us to take heart, be encouraged. I know the pains that some of you have, like me, uh, you, you made it a little bit more tempting this morning to uh, sleep in or to go out of town or to be sick. But I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here with you. I'm encouraged that despite the fact many of us wanted to stay home and, and avoid uh, just being embarrassed about our behavior or feeling a little awkward after a hard week, that Despite all that, we're here, and and we're here because we know our feelings are often untrustworthy, and we know that God has designed the church to be a greenhouse for Christian growth. We knew to stay home, to try and avoid hurt, would actually do more damage, both to the church and to our own hearts. We're here today because Jesus is our King, and our unity in Christ is more important than our pride. And so together we gather as the broken-hearted people of God, healing together as the great physician cauterizes our wounds with holy fire and revives our hearts with his life-giving word. Friends, it was hard, together to come, hard to come together this morning and be the church. But I'm glad that you are here. I'm glad that I am here. I'm thankful that God uses even our worst of sins to bring glory to himself by pointing us to our need for Christ. I hope, uh, I hope Linda doesn't mind. Uh, yesterday I stopped by and talked with her and Dale, and uh, one of the things she reminded me of uh, during my interview process here, she said, you, you sat on the stool and I asked you, can, can you handle being the pastor of a country church? And she said, you said yes. And she paused. And she said, you had no idea what you were getting yourself into. Her and Dale and I shared a laugh, and, and as I, I continued through the rest of the day, I, I I smiled to myself as I sat down to make some coffee and and edit my manuscript, and and I thought, you know, all of you had to answer that same question a couple years ago. Are we we able to handle a young cavalier pastor just out of seminary? And you said yes. And I wanted to remind you that you had no idea what you were getting yourself into. But I was thankful yesterday, and I'm thankful today. Happy for you all to be here with you. And I don't know that there's any other group of people I would rather be messed up together with as we grow up into Christ-likeness together. So I just wanted to share those things this morning. It's good to be the church. All right, sharing time is over. Mark 12, 1 through 12 this morning. Got a lot of work to do. 
As I mentioned, corporately, we had a bit of a heartbreaking week, and, and I think that actually sets us up nicely to hear from Mark this morning, because Jesus is going to tell us a heartbreaking story about his coming death. The story is aimed towards breaking the hearts of the religious leaders and leading them into repentance, but instead of being led into repentance, they harden their hearts, they ignore the story, and they continue pursuing their goal of destroying Jesus. So the main idea today as we approach this text and these verses is that hard-hearted people reject the kingship of Christ and will be destroyed, whereas the brokenhearted submit to the kingship of Christ and are given resurrection life. I want to exhort you today, this is the one big thing I want you to walk away with, I want to exhort you to be brokenhearted and inherit the vineyard of eternal life together with God. We're going to work through it in just four parts. A a familiar song, which we just read earlier in verse 1. Look at wicked tenants, a beloved son, and then we're going to see the vineyard given to others. Let's pray together this morning. Father, you are good. We love that we can come before you, not in terror, but in reverence, willing to ask anything as a kid might come before a king in the middle of the night and dare to ask for a glass of water. We dare to ask you now to pour out your spirit on us. Speak to us and help us to listen. Amen. Before we look at the text, let me reveal some of the characters we're going to come across to you. There's going to be a man who plants a vineyard, and he represents God the Father. There is a vineyard, which represents the people of God or Israel. There are tenants of the vineyard. These will represent the religious leaders. There are also going to be servants of the vineyard owner. These are the faithful prophets, and there's going to be a beloved son of the vineyard owner, and this is Jesus. So to recap, vineyard owner is God the Father, vineyard, people of God, tenants of the vineyard, the religious leaders of Israel, servants of the vineyard owner, the prophets of God, and the beloved son, Jesus. Clear as mud? Good. Let's go. Verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. That's Jesus who's speaking. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Jesus' words here are purposefully similar to what we read in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2. He's quoting almost directly as he sets up to tell the story because he knows that's going to grab the attention of his listeners. It sets the scene for us. The man has spared no expense in creating a beautiful and fruitful vineyard. And having set everything in place, he leases it out to tenants. If you want to think of it maybe as a landlord today, leases out a property to renters. And so once a month, the renters uh, pay him his due to live there. And so similar arrangements going on in this particular situation. The tenants would work the land and they would reap the benefit of its produce. But every once in a while, the landowner would want to collect. And so they would pay him a percentage of the fruit as their rent. So that's the situation that we enter into as we approach verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, the servant, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the owner sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. 
And the owner sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So the landlord sends his servants to collect the landlord's share. But the servant's given a beating instead of fruit. He sends another servant who is beaten more severely, treated more shamefully. Then finally he sends another servant whom the tenants kill. As I've said already, these servants represent the prophets sent by God to Israel to call them to repentance, to give him the worship that he rightly deserves. Yet time and time again, Israel has dismissed the prophets. In fact, they've beaten and killed them. Hebrews speaks to some of these hardships experienced by the prophets in chapter 11. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and of goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. People of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. God has been lovingly patient with Israel. He sent to them many prophets, but they refused to take the opportunity given for repentance and instead made their hearts like stone. They have rejected God's word. They have rejected his prophets, which is a rejection of God himself. I do want you to note at this point in the story, the religious leaders are likely identifying with the servants of God. They are, at the end of the day, religious leaders. And so I think that they are readily thinking of themselves as God's servants who have endured some type of suffering. So they're most readily relating to the heroines of the story. I think because they're blinded by their own hypocrisy. I think one of the funny things about hypocrisy is that usually the only person fooled is the hypocrite themselves. They fooled themselves into thinking that their wrong behavior, their rebellion against Jesus' authority is okay that even their desire to kill him is a right desire. As I read this, I thought about myself. I said, who who am I likely to identify as I read this? Who who do I identify myself with as I read this parable? And I thought, well, probably, I'm, I'm a religious leader, probably the servants of God. Then I asked myself, who should I identify myself with? Probably the tenants. How about you? Are you fooling yourself? Do you justify wrong behavior? Do you have a a sober perspective on your life? Who do you identify with at this point in the parable? I think the temptation for us all is to identify with the servants of God. But I think rather we should identify with the villains, the tenants. For we have all rebelled against God's design for life. We've all followed our own wicked hearts rather than God's heart. We've all rejected Jesus Christ in favor of ourselves. And so along with the religious leaders, we might think of ourselves or like to think of ourselves as the servants of God. But Jesus is about to show them and us that we are, or at least once were, the evil tenants. Look at verse 6. Jesus continues, landowner still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will 
respect my son. Jesus is kind of like the cat out of the bag here. He's, he's put himself into the story as the beloved son. And now it's becoming really clear to the religious leaders that he's put them into the story as well, not as God's servants, but as the tenants. Remember Jesus' question we talked about last week to them when they were having these discussions about authority and by what authority Jesus was carrying out his ministry. Jesus asked them, was John's baptism from heaven or from man? Remember they weaseled their way out of it and said, I don't know. But remember what happened when Jesus was baptized by John. That a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And again, we saw in Mark chapter 9 during the transfiguration, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus is putting himself into the story. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how the phrase beloved son is idiomatic for only son. Jesus is, is identifying himself as the son of God as the beloved son in the parable. He told them, hey, I'm not going to tell you who I am, not explicitly. And now he proceeds to tell a story that says, remember John and his baptism? That's who I am. I am God the Son. Notice here in the parable how he differs from the slaves and the servants in several important respects. They are many. He is unique. They are hirelings, perhaps even themselves property. He is the heir. They are forerunners, and he is the last and final word of the Father. The listeners are thinking as the beloved son is introduced, surely now the tenants will respect the heir. Surely they'll respect the beloved son. Most certainly he wouldn't be beaten or killed like others. They'll respect the heir. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Chills must have run down the spines of the religious leaders as Jesus spoke these words. Imagine sweat beaded up on their heads as they exchanged glances and said, he's on to us. We've been made. He knows our plans. Jesus continued, and they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This is an outrageous injustice. The people that are listening are beside themselves. Why didn't the landlord just exact justice upon the mistreatment of his servants? How could he be so patient? Why would he send his only son without an army at his back? I think because this beloved son was sent to die. That's the point of the story. Indeed, his death would set things right. This beloved son was not meant to find a substitute as Isaac did in Genesis 22, but was meant to be the substitute. This beloved son is the substitutionary sacrifice for the very people that killed him. Those the man had given the vineyard to had become his enemies. Likewise, God has given us many good gifts. But instead of allowing those gifts to propel us into giving him the worship he's due, we worship them instead of him. And we reject the beloved son in an attempt to secure for ourselves what only belongs to God, our worship, our very lives. We seek to kill God so that we can live as our own gods. Despite our wickedness and rebellion, while we were God's enemies, Jesus died for us. 
Our sin, just like the sin of the religious leaders, is the reason that Jesus had to die on the cross. And in his glorious providence, God would use this very evil to showcase his glory and bring about life everlasting for all those who would have faith in the resurrected Messiah King. Friends, all of us have the blood of Jesus on our hands. The question is, is that blood cleansing or is it damning? And the answer depends on where your faith is. Have you become brokenhearted over your sin? Confessed your need for a Savior? Turned from your wrongdoing and trusted in Jesus as your substitute? Or have you made your heart as stone and vowed to continue in rebellion as the religious leaders? What becomes of those who reject Jesus? That's the question Jesus is going to ask and answer next in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? And in Matthew's account, we hear the crowd shout out the answer. He will put those wretches to a wretched death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And here in Mark's account, Jesus affirms their answer, saying, He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus continues, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Matthew also records Jesus saying, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Notice how this fits nicely together with what we've been studying prior, with the story of the cursed fig tree and Jesus' cursing of the temple, and then him telling Peter what the fruit of faith looks like. It's faith in God, eleven twenty-two. All of it's wrapped up together here. Going to give the vineyard to others, to those producing its fruits. That's the fruit of repentance and of faith. He continues in Matthew's account, it's 21.44. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is saying, the owner of the vineyard will exact justice. Those who do not bear the fruit of faith, those who are all show and no substance, who are living in the vineyard but not producing its fruit, will wither like the fig tree. The religious leaders and people like them who reject Jesus reject the Father. They prove they do not have faith in God. As a result, they will be destroyed. In the vineyard of God, His kingdom will be given to those that trust in Jesus and bear the fruit of faith. That's why Peter writes, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, this is Peter speaking to the church, are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those that turn from their sin and believe in Jesus Christ receive adoption into the people of God, while those that refuse are destroyed by the stone they thought worthless. Jesus knows who he is and why he's come. That's why he shifted the metaphor to that of a building in verses 10 and 11. He's actually quoting 
from Psalm 118, which just so happens to be the same psalm that the people shouted out upon his entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 11. They shouted out in quotation of Psalm 118.26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus, what he does is quotes from the same psalm. He quotes from chapter 118 of the psalm, verses 22 and 23. He says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. He's making plain his identity to everyone that's listening. He's saying, I'm the beloved stone. I'm the cornerstone. I'm the Messiah that that psalm is speaking about. And you religious leaders are rejecting me. They see Jesus, but they decide he's useless. They see the stone as the builders of the building, and they toss it aside. They determine he has no value. God, however, in a marvelous reversal, takes what man rejects and makes it the cornerstone. In other words, when they cast Jesus aside as worthless, the reality is he is the piece that makes the whole building fit together. Jesus Christ is the string that holds together all the pearls of Scripture. Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived or understood that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The religious leaders understand the story is about them, but they don't consider Jesus' claims any more than they consider John's claims. They don't fear God as they should, but instead they fear the crowds and continue plotting a way to be rid of Jesus. I do want to note, this is the third time in the last couple chapters that we have seen the religious leaders uh, be driven in their behavior by fear. They're obsessed with their poll numbers. You can see that they crave this approval of man. That's why they're waiting for the right moment to seize Jesus and to kill him. I think we might be a little familiar with this desire to be well-liked, to have good poll numbers. I mean, it's natural to want to be liked. But I think what happens when you live for the approval of people, typically you, you fail to please God, and you just find yourself exhausted because at the end of the day, no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, you can't please everybody. And when your primary goal in life becomes being well-liked, you can't always be well-liked, you're never going to find a true or any lasting satisfaction. I think when we try so hard to please other people, to live up to all the expectations of everyone, we, we fail. We constantly find ourselves in this place where we're feeling insecure about ourselves. We continually to try to earn the approval of others. And I think the gospel remedies this problem teaches us to look not to others for our approval, but to God. Because when we're united to Jesus by faith, we hear from God the words that he speaks to Jesus. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. In Christ, we are approved and accepted. In Christ, we are more secure than the foundations of the earth. We are irrevocably called into God's household and sealed by his Holy Spirit. I do wonder, though, how do crowds affect you? Do you live for the approval or the acceptance of others? Christian, are you living in light of the fact that God has called you 
his beloved. The religious leaders understand the story is about them, but instead of repenting, they continue to look for a way to arrest and destroy Jesus. Remember our our main idea this morning. That's the first half of it, right? The hard-hearted reject the kingship of Christ and will be destroyed. It reminds me of a similar story uh, with a different response, though. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, I'll give you a second to turn there so that I can have a drink of water. Second Samuel, Samuel chapter 12, so just after David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. And so he's approached by the prophet Nathan, comes to David and says this, tells him a story. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel from his table and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him instead. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Like the religious leaders, David has been confronted with a story that exposes his own sin. Notice, though, how David responds. He doesn't continue in his sin, but we read, David said to Nathan, this is in verse 13 if you're there, I have sinned against the Lord. David confesses his sin and puts his faith in God. The exposure of his sin results in his repentance. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David then wrote what is probably his most famous psalm as a result of Nathan confronting him. It's Psalm 51. Listen to what he writes. I'm going to read you the whole thing. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from Your presence and take not Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach Your transgressors Your ways and sinners will return to You. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud to Your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare Your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings or religious behaviors. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's part two of our main idea. The brokenhearted submit to the kingship of Christ and are given resurrection life. This is how the people of God sound. This is what fruitful faith looks like. It's casting yourself at the feet of God, confessing your sin, confessing your inability to make yourself right with Him confessing your need for his grace it's believing in him to deliver you from the ruin earned by your sin faith in god receives his mercy and rejoices in the gift of salvation david's life isn't perfect though after he repents as a result of his sin god decrees that his child will die friends sin always has devastating consequences Yes, repenting of your wrongdoing and putting your faith in Jesus will bring you a peace that transcends all understanding and a joy that is unspeakably wonderful, but it will not make your life perfect. Until Christ comes and we are made perfect, sin will have consequences. We do well to remember that it's because of our sin that the beloved Son of God had to die. Yet because of God's love for us, he was glad to die. Even when we were his enemies, we were the joy set before him. For our sake, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. When our hearts and our lives have shouted, crucify him, he has responded, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and his soon return. It's a true story that we're living in the middle of, and it confronts you today. You have sinned. You have done wrong. You cannot make yourself right with God. But if you will submit to the authority of Christ, if you will make him the Lord of your life, abandoning your attempts to be your own God or your own authority, He will give to you the mercy that you do not deserve. He will give you peace with God. He will give you Himself. Jesus Christ lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. And He rose from the grave victorious over death. So that those who trust in Him, so that if you trust in Him, you can be adopted into the family of God. You can be made a new creation. And you can like Him. After you die in this life, raise from the dead for the next life. 
what will you do with the gospel story? Will you reject Jesus and consequently be ruined by him like the religious leaders? Will it just be another story that you ignore? Or will you run to Jesus in repentance and be redeemed like David? Will you put your faith in Jesus and rise from the dead, spiritually now and physically later? The brokenhearted submit to the kingship of Christ and are given resurrection life. Come to Him. Come to Him, sinners, broken, weary, poor, and needy, asking Him to give you the life of Jesus. Come praying Psalm 51 for yourself with a broken heart. Then the great physician will give you a heart transplant. will give you a new heart that's pure and holy, that loves him steadfastly as he loves you. You will be made new. Hear the gospel story. Don't ignore it, friends. It's a story that belongs to you and to me. The question is, will it end happily or will it end in hell? The answer depends on where your faith is. I pray you put it in Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you for warning us of the consequences of our sin. Warning us about what we've earned and what we do earn when we choose our way rather than your way. When we set ourselves up as our own gods rather than following you, the one true God. Father, we are all sinners. We all need your forgiveness. Forgive us once more this morning. Break our bones where they need to be broken, that we might cry out to you with broken hearts, and that you might heal those bones and lead us into rejoicing in your presence. Father, we thank you for this community that we can exhort one another towards good deeds and love and hopefully display your gospel to one another and to the lost and dying, that they might see the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ, to behold it and learn to love him. Father, save many in our midst, in our community, and remind us of the joy of our own salvation. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.